a number of years ago, I worked with a young woman who was a part of a church where they believed that you could reach a place of, of sinless perfection. And this was a number of years ago, so I guess at that point she hadn't seen Christians interact on Facebook uh, at that point, because that sort of would have been exhibit A <laughs> against her claim. Uh, but she sort of felt bad for me, actually, because she felt like, oh, you kind of acknowledge that you're a sinner. That's, that's so sad. And I mean, I found it kind of odd that she'd never like pick up any of my shifts because I found that kind of, you know, selfish of her. Sinfully selfish, maybe? I don't know. Someone I know was chatting with a man who was a part of a denomination where they, they believed the same thing and noticed on his lapel he was wearing a pin with a 20 on it. And he said to him, hey, what, is that, what does that signify? And he said, oh, this is my 20-year pin. I, I have been sinless for 20 years. Now, forgive my cynicism here, but... When he's putting the pin on his lapel in the morning so that others see it, is there no pride vibe going on there at all? Like, I don't know. I don't know. But listen, if you're wearing a sinless pin, sinless pin right now, um, I think you should probably quietly sort of nonchalantly remove it because I think that misunderstands sanctification. Or, very differently, if you're not fighting sin at all in your life because, well, grace, I need you to track with me today as well because you misunderstand sanctification. Also, those of you who are feeling hopeless today, hopeless in your fight with sin, Listen, I want you to know that that hopelessness is actually rooted in a misunderstanding of sanctification. So while we won't be perfect this side of heaven, the Christian life is one of change and growth in holiness and Christ-likeness. The most simplistic definition of sanctification I can give you is becoming more like Christ and less like the world. Now, just to get our bearings, we're in a sermon series called Jesus Saves, and today we're going to study what's referred to as the doctrine of sanctification. Now, unlike some of the other aspects of salvation where God alone works, right, we looked at the fact that God elects and that God regenerates a heart and that God justifies us by his grace. Well, those are true of what God does. We see in sanctification that we play an active role with God in it. And you're gonna see that really clearly in our text today. But before we get there, I want us to kind of see where salvation fits in the grand scheme of salvation. And so to help us do that, I want you to understand that there are three senses in the Bible uh, that salvation, the word salvation is used. I, I've said this before, so this will be familiar to some of you. But the three senses in which salvation is used in the Bible are past, present, and future. Past has to do with immediate salvation from the penalty of sin at the moment of conversion. It's justification. It's, it's right standing with God. If you have been a Christian for any amount of time, you look back at the past at your conversion where you were justified by God, made right with him in the past, it's done. 
And then in the future sense of salvation, we're looking at God's ultimate salvation from the presence of sin, which is glorification. That's what our Easter sermon will be about this year, which is coming up real quick. It's when we receive resurrection bodies. But then there's the present sense of salvation, which is ongoing salvation from the power and practice of sin. Said another way, justification deals with the guilt of sin, where we are declared not guilty. Glorification deals with the ultimate defeat of sin. Sanctification deals with the present help we need in fighting sin. So for justification, think forgiveness. Glorification, think ultimate deliverance. Sanctification, present help. I don't know about you, but I don't only need forgiveness and ultimate deliverance. I desperately need God's present help. Who doesn't need present help? Therefore, praise God for the doctrine of sanctification. I'm gonna show a diagram to you here for a second. And this diagram comes from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology where he talks about three stages of sanctification. What we see is that I have been saved from slavery to sin at conversion. Meaning I have been justified by the grace of God and am seen as righteous in his sight on account of Christ's spotless record. Now, but what is true of the spotless legal record we have been given on account of Jesus is not true of our mortal lives functionally this side of heaven. I mean, you and I know this. Everyone with, but the guy with the pin know this. And so this life is one of growing in grace, growing in Christ-likeness. You're probably familiar with this. The, the time in your life where there's two step for, steps forward, but then there's the time in your life where there's one step back, two steps back. And so what, what I am to do, what I, how I am to see sanctification is I now look back to the cross with gratitude and forward to glory with this, with this secure hope and joy and the rest of my life, the life I'm living right now, is shaped by wanting to be what I already am. That's how we are to live right now. We recognize in the past was the cross where we were justified. Our future, right, right legal standing with God, our future is glory with him, perfection. We will be made perfect, spotless, like Christ, because of Christ. So what are we to do now? Live into those realities. Praise God. Now, pick up your Bible. Our sermon called Jesus Saves, uh, we're rooting ourselves in the book of Romans, and we are in Romans chapter 6, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 19, but we'll take it in two sections. We're just going to look at verses 12 to 14 first. Here's what they say. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. Now this text teaches us a lot about sanctification. I'll give you five. Here's the first. We see that God has a role in our sanctification, and so do we. This passage tells us that we're not under the law, but under grace, because that's God's doing. 
That's God's part. And is, it's also, this text is full of imperatives, exhortations, commands. Don't do this. Instead, present yourselves here, and so on. So, so what is the role God plays, and what is the role we play in our sanctification? This is important to parse out. Well, first, God's role in sanctification is this. Jesus is our example in the process of sanctification. As we seek to grow, to be sanctified, to become more Christ-like, well, we look at the example of Christ. And in that way, that is God's role. Jesus presents us with the picture, with our example for sanctification. Second, Jesus had to do more than be our example. He had to be our substitute. The death of Jesus on the cross is what makes our sanctification possible. And third, the Holy Spirit works within us to sanctify us, right? That's why we call it the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of Matt. It's not our own doing. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Spirit working in us to present us with the attributes of God. Those are all God's role in sanctification, but we too have a role in sanctification. Sort of a passive role and an active role. Our passive role is that we are to depend on God to sanctify us. Verse 13 says, present or yield yourselves to God. And so we are to yield ourselves over to God, entrusting him to do what only he can do by the spirit and by the power that raised Jesus from the dead, that work in us that only God can do. And yet we have an active part to play as well. We strive, we strive to obey God and take steps that will increase our sanctification. Look at verse 12. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Don't do it. So if we neglect the passive role of trusting God and yielding to him, we we risk either becoming proud or disproportionately dependent on ourselves. On the other hand, if we neglect active striving to obey God, we become passive, lazy Christians. So either way, our sanctification will be greatly deficient. Instead, we need a passive trust in God to sanctify us and actively strive for holiness and greater obedience. We're often guilty of misapplying sanctification this way. We have this idea that I work for my salvation, but, but underneath that view is this idea that God is not do, doing supernatural work in me. But that of course is an error. Or we go to the opposite pendulum and God works out my sanctification, full stop meaning it requires no effort from me. Think of sanctification though, properly, kind of like a sailboat. We lift the sail in the vast ocean, little boat. We lift the sail, the spirit of God brings the wind. We are active, we are participants in our sanctification. In other words, we are to work out what God has worked in our lives as believers. Second, we see sin is not dead in Christians. Now this is true even in the most mature and devout Christians. And so we must fight sin. We can grow and grow and grow and be sanctified and be sanctified in some kind of carnal desires or some habitual sins we can be rid of in the Christian life. But even the most devout, mature follower of Jesus, what often happens is as you mature and as you get an even clearer vision of Jesus and his commands and his ways, what you discover is that even just a a little thought you have 
kind of plagues you. You go, oh Lord, rid me of this. Like we're never rid of that in our earthly life. And so we must fight sin, all of us. How do we know? How do we know that that's true, that sin is not dead in Christians so we must fight it? Well, because there'd be no point in Paul telling us not to offer our bodies to sin as instruments of wickedness, but instead to offer them to God as instruments of righteousness, unless we have a tendency towards sin. The reason we have to fight against sin is because we are sinners. Some of you might say, well then, is our fight with sin a works righteousness? Isn't it by grace alone? And that's a question that Paul brings up in verse one of chapter six and verse 15 of chapter six in a slightly different way. But I think Dallas Willard gets it exactly right here when he wrote, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Meaning these verses aren't a charge to earn our salvation through works, but an encouragement to live out the far reaching implications of our salvation by applying effort. Third, sin can reign in or even dominate our bodies. Now I need you to hear me clearly, okay? Some nuance to this. Sin can never dominate or destroy the new person you are in Christ. If you have been saved, sin cannot destroy your salvation. Once saved, we now hate sin and yearn for righteousness and will grow in it because God is determined to produce the holy character of Jesus in his people. But sin can certainly dominate our bodies. We can become slaves to the cravings of the body. If this weren't the case, it'd be pointless for Paul to say, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And I think every single one of us is aware of the tension in ourselves to sin or to follow the way of Christ. We're gonna get into that uh, more, more, kind of a more clarifying way very soon. Fourth, although it can reign in or dominate our bodies, sin does not need to reign in our bodies. Sin does not need to reign in our bodies. Although it's possible for us to present our members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, we don't need to do this. Our text makes that clear. Actually, being joined to Jesus, we have his new life within and his power available to us. Having been not able to not sin, as Augustine used to put it, having been not able not to sin, we have now become able not to sin. Like I said, we're going to talk about that a little bit more soon, but that's crucial. Having previously not been able to not sin, we have now become able not to sin. We often do sin. Again, that's why Paul's saying what he does in this text, but we no longer need to. We have an alternative and power to do it. Fifth, as Christians, we can now offer our bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. Our eyes, ears, mouth, and nose, <laughs> and minds, and tongues, and hands, and feet. John Stott wrote a book entitled, Your Mind Matters, and in it, in it he showed how a proper use of our minds is necessary for growth in all areas of the Christian life. He related it to worship and faith and the pursuit of holiness and seeking guidance from God and others, presenting the gospel to others and exercising spiritual gifts. I appreciate how this text tells us to present our members, 
our bodies to God for righteousness because every temptation to listen to gossip with our ears, every temptation to speak a lie or a hurtful word, every temptation to let our feet take us where they should not go and on and on and on. We need to be reminded of what verse 14 says where it says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. You have been delivered out of the dominion of sin. This means that the spirit of God is within you. And even when sin seems too powerful to resist, that's not the case because sin will have no dominion over you. We are children of God and Christ won the victory over sin, including breaking the power of sinful desires in our lives. Praise God. That is a true reality. And so we are not determined to our sinful natures. We are actually able, because of Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, to present ourselves to God who has brought us from death to life. I think you'd still have a handful of questions about sanctification. And so I think that the illustration that Paul uses in the next number of verses are really helpful for us. Let's pick it up in verse 15. It says, what then? He's anticipating a question that you might have in your minds. What then? Are we to sin because we are no longer, not under law, but under grace? His response, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Who was Paul writing this to? Who were the original hearers? Well, this is the book of Romans. It was the church in Rome that Paul was writing to. And in that context, they would have understood this illustration of slavery profoundly. It's estimated that in the first century, Rome, about a third of the population were slaves. In fact, they, they decided that they would not have slaves wear clothes that would identify them as slaves, particular items of clothes that would identify them as slaves because then they'd realize how many they were and therefore how powerful they were and that in reality they could have actually overthrown Rome. And so they didn't use those identifiers on slaves because a third of the population were slaves. But additionally, many who were free had previously been slaves. So it's thought that roughly half the population either were or had been slaves meaning every member of the church at Rome would be keenly aware of the implications of what Paul is saying in verse 16. Do, not, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? In fact, we obey that which enslaves us. We all do. None of us are as free as we think. I thought Jorge illustrated this so well a few weeks ago when he talked about the fact that you can go to a restaurant and you go to order something and really you can, 
in one sense, order anything off the menu that you want. But are you that free? So, so applying that to myself, I can go to a restaurant and I can order the salad, but I won't. I will order the burger. And then the option for the salad comes back again and they're like, well, would you like a side salad or fries? And yet again, I'll be like, not the salad. I will have the fries. I will have the burger and fries. How free am I? <laughs> See, everyone is a slave to something or someone. And whatever that something or someone is becomes a master and we become its slave. Whoever seeks power is controlled by power. Whoever seeks acceptance is controlled by acceptance. So whether you're religious or not, we all have a God and we're all worshipers. See, all of humanity, to put this in the context of, of the human race, all of humanity serves one of two slaveries, ultimately. Sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to life. Everyone who's ever lived has been subject to the first, a slavery to sin. The second slavery is to Christ, and instead of bondage, this slavery brings freedom. It's a slavery, a slavery to Christ, and yet it brings freedom. Now, some might think, well, how does going from one slavery to another bring freedom? Aren't we still enslaved? Why does slavery to Christ bring freedom? I don't know if any of you listen to jazz, but I love jazz. And jazz is all about improv. And so in that regard, it's kind of all about freedom. It's sometimes said of jazz, there's no rules. And yet there really are. There's sort of these non-negotiable underpinnings that make jazz jazz. There are some rules. And so what actually happens is by committing to practice and discipline, by learning and growing and, and submitting yourself to the process, whether it's piano or trumpet or saxophone or guitar, once you learn the structure of jazz and learn it well, then you are free to improvise, to play, and you experience true freedom. Sanctification works the same way. When we become slaves of righteousness, we actually find freedom. Freedom to be fully human, fully alive, who God has made us to be. And so when we begin to live into that, we actually find freedom, even while being obedient slaves to Christ. In fact, only when we become slaves of Christ. Slavery to sin begins at our birth. Slavery to Christ begins at our new birth when God's grace enables us to embrace the gospel. And then it totally changes our lives and transforms us. Practically speaking, let's get really practical. Here's how we can apply this. Verse 19 says, now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. This means coming to daily situations and just recognizing the possibility of treating God as my highest good and therefore as my master or treating something else as my highest good and therefore as my master. And in the moment when we're making that decision, we're actually choosing where we think the freedom lies. I'll find freedom if I chase this. I'll find freedom if I act this way, make this decision, follow this impulse. There's something there that will satisfy. And the reality is that when we understand that Christ is our master and our highest good, 
That's where our true freedom lies. And so as situations of life arise, this is the ruling motivation of the Christian. Pleasing Jesus. Now, if I've ever been accused of using one illustration more than the others, it's this one I'm going to use again. (laughs) And it's about Abraham Lincoln. If you've heard it before, bear with me. I love this story. Abraham Lincoln was uh, seeking to be president of the United States and his advisor said, well, one of the things you want to do is abolish slavery. So here's what you should do. You should go to the docks where slaves come in off the ships and are sold at an auction block and you should purchase a slave and then free them. It would be such a profound statement for your presidency. And so he agreed and he went. And now just picture the scene like a movie with me, won't you? Abraham Lincoln sleeps, slips into the back of the crowd. Big crowd, auction block, a strong male slave is put on the block. People are bidding all over the place, sold. Another strong slave, another healthy slave. Couple of the six slaves. At one point, a beautiful young woman is put on the auction block. And there's this particularly harsh slave owner near the front that begins to bid on her. And everyone's aware of what a despicable man this is. And then there's someone near the back who bids as well. And it starts going back and forth. And it really comes down to the two of them. And people look back, all they see is top hat, right? Bid, bid, bid. Finally, the, the cruel slave owner grows frustrated and just gives up. Abraham Lincoln wins. Now just picture it like a movie. The crowd parts and this young woman is brought in chains by the auctioneers to Abraham Lincoln and she's terrified. And she's looking at the ground and Lincoln says, unbind her hands and unbind her feet. And he lifts her chin and looks her in the eye and says, my dear, you are free. You're free to go wherever you want to go. You're free to be whoever you want to be. And she looks at him and she looks around. And in amazement, she says, if I am able to go wherever I want to go and be whoever I want to be, then I'm going with you. I hope you know this already. The gospel sets us free. And it's Jesus who lifts our chin and looks us in the eye. Who frees us from the tyranny of enslavement to sin. Free to be who God made us to be. Freed from the enslaving power of sin. And the only appropriate response is to be in Christ. For Christ and with Christ. To present ourselves fully and completely to God alone. And every circumstance in our lives should lead us to ask the question, whose am I? And whom will I serve? When every circumstance in your life confronts you, two questions that should be at the forefront of our minds is whose am I? And whom will I serve? How does this play out? Oh, I look at some areas in my life and they just feel painfully slow as it pertains to sanctification. Like if they're moving, they're moving terribly slow. 
And, and some of that has been compounded and pressed. Some of, some of my areas of, of sinfulness and areas in me that are hard and just I don't seem to be having a lot of growth on have been really pressed this last year. I mean, so many of you will relate to this and, and I'm sure no one will be surprised by this, but leadership is just is not fun in a year like the one we are in right now. It's been hard, right? For so many of you, it's been just an especially difficult year and it's hard to lead in a year like this. One of the reasons it's hard to lead is because so much of the joy of ministry is gone because you are so much a part of the joy of ministry. Our interactions, ministering to each other, encouraging each other, blessing each other, praying for each other, laughing with each other, enjoying each other, deepening relationships as the body of Christ, the local church family. Like it all feels pulled, stretched, it's disorienting. And frankly, it's discouraging. And yet, yet God is, is sort of working in that, but a lot of the encouragements are gone. And the ramp up of discouragements have ramped up, right? I, I used to like never get harsh emails. <laughs> Emphasis on used to. And in those moments, I, I'm confronted with a really big challenge. Because a lot of times they're, they're not said in a way um, that's upbuilding, you know? The, the accusations of unfaithfulness or encouraging me to be biblical because the way that the elders are responding right now is by their interpretation not. And so the kind of accusations fly. What do you do in those situations? I'll just be really honest with you. There is a major part of me that has some zinger lines that I would like to say or to reply. Right, you wanna critique me? Let me critique you. Like that's the first stuff that comes to my mind. But underneath that, what if I'm gonna say, whose am I and whom will I serve? See, in those moments, if I'll a answer the questions those way, that way and, and let God sanctify me that way this year, which I think he is doing, I'm not nailing it, but I'm growing at it, is in those situations to say, you know what? Some of this was a bit harsh. Some of this was a bit unfair, but what's the truth here? I can ask myself, what do I need to repent of? And what's the way in which that I can return a response to this brother or this sister with a gentle answer? But listen, if being seen as a good leader is my master, criticism is a devastating disaster. But if Jesus is my master, I can confess my part, my sin, and know that I'm forgiven. And I can lean on Jesus and know my status and know whose I am and ask the Lord to soften me, grow me, shape me, use me as a blessing, use me as an encouragement in the midst of the discouragement. Whose are you? And whom will you serve? Now, I want to end with 
I'm going to end really quickly. I'm just going to really go fast through these and just hope you pick some stuff up. But what are the incentives for fighting sin daily and living a godly life? I know for some of you, right? Many of you are discouraged in your fight with sin, even feeling hopeless. And you're like, what motivation is there? Or what hope is there that I can actually grow? That Jesus will meet me here, that the spirit of God will do some work in this because I've tried and tried and tried and I feel like giving up. What's the motivation? What's the incentive for fighting sin daily and living a godly life? In other words, why strive in our sanctification? Let me give you eight real fast. Here's the first, gratitude. Because gratitude. See, our new motivation for obedience to God is gratitude. That is our incentive to be holy, not obedience to the law out of fear or self-confidence, but gratitude for Jesus who died for us so that the enslaving power of sin could be broken. When when we are told offering ourselves to God, we do that because we know that we are those who have been brought from death to life. And that fills us with gratitude. There's no crushing weight anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. So we live in gratitude. Why press into our sanctification? Because we're grateful for what Jesus has done for us. Second, out of a desire to please God. It's kind of just from a slightly different angle and to express our love to him. I have this little podcast thing I do and I had the crazy amazing privilege of getting to talk to one of my heroes, Martin Smith from Delirious. And I was chatting with him and I was telling him, you know, like I learned every song that you pretty much ever wrote for like a good 10 years there. And I was even accused of singing with a British accent because I was trying to sing like he sang. And so this, this kind of great form of flattery was, well, I'm trying to be like you. See, there's this desire in us to please God because he's been so good. We, we love him so much. We want to be like him. See, a motivation for sanctification is that I want to be like Christ because I want to show him I love him. I have a desire to please him because he has been so good. Third, we look at the need to keep a clear conscience before God. Right? We've been freed from the enslaving power of sin. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so when we do sin, there's this conviction of the Spirit in us. It doesn't sit right. It's part of that freedom we were talking about earlier, being able to repent of sin and live into who we are, guilt-free, clear conscience. Praise God for the gospel. It's incredible to be able to repent of sin, come clean and have a clear conscience. What a beautiful motivator. What a beautiful disposition we can have in life because of the gospel. Fourth, because of the desire for peace. Philippians 4.9 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Put my commands, what I'm telling you, how I'm inviting you to live. Apply those and you will experience peace. The peace of God. Fifth, joy. Joy in doing what is right simply because God's commands are right. Doing what God commands because it, it is right actually brings joy. Sanctification brings incredible joy to us. Psalm 40 verse 6 says, I delight to do your will, O God. See, the more we grow in Christ-likeness, the more we will personally experience the joy of the Lord. Sixth, here's a motivator, here's an incentive for pressing into our sanctification, for kingdom effectiveness. 
See, out of the desire to increase in our effectiveness in the work of the kingdom. See, God's kingdom reigns within us and it expresses itself through us as we obey him. We are to present ourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. See, this is to live into who we truly are, who God made us to be, and who we will be in glory for all eternity. It, it's, it's, it's that prayer, the Lord's prayer that he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How are we to live? We're to live out how we will live for all eternity in the kingdom of God and express it in our lives. Here, what a beautiful motivator. Seventh, the desire to see unbelievers come to Christ through observing our lives. What a great incentive for sanctification. A desire to see unbelievers come to Christ through observing our lives. First Peter 2.12 says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. In other words, unbelievers honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of invitation. Why would they be glorifying God on the day of invitation? Because they'd come to Christ. God used observing their lives to do so. Jesus talked about being salt and being light. To become Christ-like is to also put on display the ways of the kingdom and draw unbelievers to Jesus. Eighth and finally, because of glory and satisfaction. John Piper famously said, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. See, by pressing into your sanctification, God gets glory and you get joy and satisfaction. And I just think, man, what a beautiful motivation. We are satisfied and God is glorified. Of course, we would want to live to that end. Now, as we close, I just want to take a moment before we pray and just invite you to reflect on your sanctification the way you can reflect on your sanctification is not so much looking at like two weeks ago, so much as looking at two years ago, four years ago, if you've been a believer for a long time, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and just reflecting on, on the work that the Lord has done and the sanctifying work as you've actively pursued God, you've been disciplined in the faith, you've, you've, you've gotten to know him better in his word and in prayer and some sharp edges in you and some areas of sin, you've actually seen growth and maturity in, in the Christian walk. I just want you to reflect on that for a minute and give praise to God. He is working in you. The spirit of God is working in you. And, and your efforts to live in light in such gratitude and response does so much in your sanctifying, the sanctifying work God's doing. Let's give him praise. Let's celebrate what the spirit of God is doing among us. And let's invite him to continue as we fight sin and live for his glory and live into who we're called to be. Let's pray that he will continue to shape us more and more into the image of his son. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your grace. Thank you for justification. Thank you for future glorification. God, I thank you for your sanctifying work among us today, now. Lord, I pray we would just take enough time to reflect and see how you've been working and, and find encouragement there. You love us. You're building into us. You're building up the church through each one of us as we live for you. Continue to mold and shape us more and more into the image of your son. Lord, give us victory where we need victory. 
Give us joy and peace as we respond more and more to whose we are. We're yours. We love you. We want to live for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.